summer Sunday School series that we're calling Great Figures of the Old Testament. My name is Ryan Bonfilio. I'm one of the ministers here at First Pres, and we're delighted that in the midst of all the summer travels and vacations and other such things that you are here with us this morning. Whether this is your first time in this series or whether you've been here for, I think, all five of the previous sessions, uh, we're glad to have you. Uh, all of our sessions in this nine-part series stand on their own. So if this is your first time with us this morning, you won't feel left out of the conversation. This is its own independent lesson. If you have been with us in previous uh, weeks, you'll see kind of the, the arc and the trajectory of this class, and this will fit right in. If you have missed uh, any of the classes before and want to get caught up, you can uh, subscribe to First Pres ATL on iTunes and listen to, in addition to the sermons, you can listen to these Sunday School lectures and have them automatically download to your iPhone or tablet, or you can go on to the web under the Learn link and go to Sunday School, Curricu uh, Sunday School Curriculum, and there you can find all the Prezi slides for this series as well as the audio podcasts. Just a brief word about what this series is about, and then we'll pray and get started. Uh, this nine-week series, as the title suggests, look at, looks at some of the most prominent figures in all of the Old Testament. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, Noah's sons, uh, Abraham and, I'm trying to think of who we've done, Abraham and Sarah, uh, Hagar and Ishmael, so on and so forth. And in each case, our goal is to, just to re-familiarize ourselves with these wonderfully rich and complex stories. Many of these stories are familiar to us, either from being in church for many years, or Sunday school, or hymns, or various different things. But in often, I often find that many of these stories are more complicated than we originally, or at least as we remember them. There's more details, there's more complexity, there sometimes are gaps in the story that don't make sense. And so one of our goals in the series is to revisit those stories, to discover their complexities, and to think together about uh, how these stories still might be relevant to Christian faith and practice today. So we've done that with a number of different figures so far in the series, and today we turn to Miriam and the women of Exodus. But before we get to that, let's pray and we'll get started. God of the ancestors, God of the disciples, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we think and study together these ancient scriptures that we call Bible. We pray, Lord, that this, these stories of old might come alive to us in fresh ways as we rediscover these ancient figures of faith and how they might be relevant to who we are as Christians today. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start just with a, a brief word about context and where we are in the story of Scripture. Uh, this is the, all of the previous weeks of this study so far, we've been looking at characters in the book of Genesis, and today for the first time we finish the book of Genesis and move on to the very next book in the Bible, which is the book of Exodus. And if you remember how things left off at the end of Genesis, you remember there was a famine, and Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, gets sold into slavery in Egypt, and while in Egypt, Joseph, due to his own wisdom, but also a healthy portion of divine guidance, Joseph uh, wins favor in Pharaoh's court and rises to power, even to the second most powerful position in the land. And with that power that he has, he orchestrates a plan for Egypt to avoid uh, a great famine that's, supposed, that, that's about to hit. Anyway, the story goes, Joseph eventually brings uh, his other uh, sons, or excuse me, J Joseph brings his siblings, his other brothers, his one daughter, uh, sister Dinah, and the rest of the family of the Israelites from Canaan to the land of Egypt. And there they live, and they multiply, and they flourish. And it seems like it's going to be happily ever after. But of course, it's not. And we get that one line early on in Exodus that says, and there arose a pharaoh 
who did not know Joseph. In other words, Joseph's and his family's good standing in Egypt was contingent on one leader. And once that one leader passed and other leaders came into play, uh, there was suspicion about the Israelites. The fact that they were multiplying and growing was a cause of concern. The pharaohs wondered, if these Israelites, if there's a war, and if these Israelites join our enemies, we're in trouble. So what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh decides to enslave them. Pharaoh sets taskmasters over uh, the descendants after Joseph and weigh them down with difficult work. And this sets the problem that the rest of the book of Exodus is meant to address. How do you get the Israelites out of slavery to be the free people that Yahweh had called them to be? And many of you are familiar with how that story gets played out. You know of that burning bush scene where Moses is commissioned and called by God to be a leader. You know that story of the ten plagues and how Yahweh works in concert with Moses to bring the people out of, out of the land of Egypt. And you know the wilderness wanderings that follow when the Israelites, even six weeks after Egypt, are grumbling and complaining and want to head back. You know, many of you know the broad contours of this story. But today, I want to look at something slightly different. I want to look at a different dimension of this story. The book of Exodus is often understood as a battle between Moses and Pharaoh, or maybe between the gods of Egypt and Yahweh, Israel's God. But today, I want to look at something different. I want to look at the role of Miriam and five other women in the book of Exodus, to see how they work alongside of Moses, and sometimes even before Moses, to have an active role in the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. So this is what we're going to look at. We'll proceed episode by episode uh, through the story, looking at various women. Uh, but before we do that, of course, as you know, our practice is to have a quiz. And you know that I sometimes call these pointless quizzes because, in fact, there are no points given or awarded for this quiz, which means that you cannot get any points deducted for wrong answers. But there is, I hope, a great point to, the, to these quizzes, that it's a way to introduce you to this content. So let's get started. Question number one, how is Miriam, Miriam is the title character of this lesson, how is Miriam related to Moses? Sister. Uh, hearing a lot, any, any other views? Sisters, a strong vote for sister? Mostly getting sister. Well, as you know, in these quizzes and in the Bible, the answer is always a little bit more complicated than you think. Sister is the most common answer, and in many regards, sister is correct. But let me add two caveats to that. First, in Exodus 2, when we first meet Moses' sister, she is never named Miriam. That doesn't mean that she isn't Miriam. It just means that Exodus 2, when it introduces Moses' sister, and we'll look at that text in just a second, she's not named. So we don't know for sure that that's Miriam. The other curious fact is that throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, every time that Miriam is mentioned, she is never, ever called Moses' sister. Does that mean that she's not Moses' sister? Maybe not. But it's curious that the sister of Moses is never called Miriam, and Miriam is never called the sister of Moses in the book of Exodus. So how do we get this very common answer that Miriam is Moses' sister? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, there are other parts of scripture, particularly books after the book of Exodus, uh, that name Miriam as Aaron's sister. So Miriam is definitely Aaron's sister. In later tradition, Aaron becomes Moses' sister. Uh, Moses, not sister, sorry. Uh, that, that would be a whole different conversation. Um, <laughs> Aaron becomes Moses' brother. So if Miriam is Moses' 
uh, sorry, my words are not translating today. If Miriam is Aaron's sister and Aaron is the brother of Moses, then that means that Miriam is a sister of Moses. I have to, like this like math in my back head. If A is B and B equals C, then A, there's some rule there that, that governs all of this. Um, but it seems to be, the short answer is it seems to be that originally uh, there was a tradition that Moses uh, did not, uh, his sister was not named Miriam, but only through time did, uh, did there become this tradition that it began to associate Miriam, Miriam and Moses as siblings. We'll say more about that as we go on. Second question for our uh, enjoyment today. What is the name of the Egyptian king? What is the name of the Egyptian king in the book of Exodus? Now, I wouldn't just have you fill in the blank. I'm going to give you options. Is it Pharaoh? Is it Ramses II? Is it Joel Edgerton? Or is it none of the above? Which of these four? How about Pharaoh? I, I see a few half hands. What about Ramses II? couple more tentative hands. What about Joel Edgerton? I'll explain who he is in a second. No hands for that. That's good. What about none of the above? There's a high percentage of non-voting participants in this quiz. Uh, I'll just note that. Well, let's do a process of elimination. What about Pharaoh? Well, Pharaoh is not a name. It's a title. It's a title. So it's not properly his name. So Pharaoh is something like president. So if you say um, President Trump or President Obama, president is not the first name of those individuals. It's just a title to go along with that individual. So Pharaoh is what the king of Egypt is called in the book of Exodus, but it's not his name. Now, what about Ramses II? Well, the book of Exodus never, ever calls the king of Egypt Ramses or Ramses II. However, Ramses II was king of Egypt at about the time that we think the Israelites were, uh, were about to be, uh, break out of slavery at that time. So even though the Bible never says Ramses is that person, scholars have speculated that this king is, in fact, Ramses II. Who's Joel Edgerton? Anyone know? Joel Edgerton is the Australian-born actor who plays the king of Egypt in the recent movie uh, by Ridley Scott called, uh, what is it called, Exodus of Kings and Gods or something like that. So kind of he's the king of Egypt, but only in 2014 in Ridley Scott's movie. The answer, in fact, of course, is, is none of the above. Pharaoh is never named in the book of Exodus. And this is a curious uh, fact, and we might wonder why. Why does Pharaoh go unnamed in the book of Exodus? A couple possibilities. One, perhaps the biblical author is saying, well, all pharaohs are alike. It's just pharaoh. All pharaohs are the same. So whatever pharaoh you're thinking of, fill in the gap. That's the pharaoh that's oppressive. That's the pharaoh who's kept the Israelites down over all these years. So it's, it's intentionally a generic term. Or similarly, perhaps it's meant as a symbolic term. That is, this is just like the pharaoh... Uh, maybe in the way we might say, like, it's the Fuhrer or something like that. Like, fill in the gap, fill in the blank about whatever oppressive thing or person you can think of, that's what Pharaoh is. So it kind of lets readers kind of reimagine the story of oppression to fit their own times and places and culture. The third possibility about why Pharaoh is not named, and this is the one that I actually find most intriguing, is this. Ancient Egypt, like many other ancient Near Eastern countries, practice something known as dematio memoriae. That is, if you really didn't like someone, let's say you didn't like a former king, Paris the thought, you didn't like a former king, what you would do is you would go throughout the land, and in every place that you found that king's name, statues, tablets, so on and so forth, you would take a hammer and a chisel, and you would etch out 
the king's name. So literally, throughout the land, you're erasing the name of king from public view. I wonder if the biblical author isn't doing something similar. He's trying to erase the name of Pharaoh, this horrific figure for the Israelites. Is the biblical author trying to erase the name of Pharaoh, much like the ancient, Israel, ancient Egyptians did? I'm not sure, but it's, I think it's an intriguing possibility with some theological merit. Okay, one more question in our quiz. What is the name of Moses' wife? Now, we're going to meet Moses' wife later in this study. She's one of the women that we're going to take a closer look at. But what is the name of Moses' wife? Again, I won't ask you to fill in the blank. We'll do multiple choice. Is it Laura, Gomorrah, Sephora, or Zipporah? They all sound alike. We're getting some Ds. Any others? Strong vote for, for D. Let's also go through process of elimination. Laura is quite a nice name, but not a biblical name, so that's out. Gomorrah is the name of a legendary prehistoric Israelite city, not the name of Moses' wife. Sephora, what's Sephora? Yeah, it's a very uh, famous French uh, cosmetic company. Sounds a bit biblical, but from what I can tell in my in-depth studies, it is not biblical. Uh, then finally, the fourth option is Zipporah, and that, of course, is the right answer. In uh, uh, Exodus 2, uh, Moses meets the daughter of a Midianite priest, and that daughter is named Zephora. And I'll go into the details about how they met and why in just a moment, uh, but that is, in fact, Moses' wife. However, things are never as simple as you might seem. For in Numbers 12, we read this odd statement. Sorry, it's a little bit low on the screen. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. I'll say more about why they do this in a second. Because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. And then the author seems to need to add a parenthetical. Like you, you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't believe it. For he had indeed married a Cushite woman. Now, why is this controversial? Well, Zephora... Zipporah is Midianite. She's not the Cushite woman. Midian and Cush are different countries, different places. And even though some conservative scholars have tried, because they wanted to maintain the idea that Moses had only one wife, they've tried to equate Zipporah with the Cushite woman, it seems totally implausible that that's the case. These are clearly different places, and it seems very clear that Moses had a second wife. Now, this is not that odd in the ancient world. After all, um, many before him, including Abraham, seem to have been associated with more women in terms of marriage. But nevertheless, this is, this is a point uh, that comes up. We don't know the name of the Cushite wife, but it doesn't seem to be Zipporah. So interesting things here, um, and I'll let you grade yourselves, as always, with this quiz. Uh, but I hope that uh, begins to illuminate some aspects of the story. Okay, let's move on to our first uh, women deliverers in the book of Exodus. And we get them right off the bat. In the very first verses of the book of Exodus, we discover two women, Shifra and Puah, uh, who uh, end up playing a crucial role in foiling the plot of Pharaoh to eliminate the Israelites. Now, Shifra and Puah, as we'll see in a second, they're midwives. And what's a midwife? 
Right, someone who helps, uh, helps in, in birth or helps in delivery. And they actually seem to be more popular today. Uh, many people are using midwives. Um, and in fact, if you, if you are a viewer of PBS, you might know the, the TV show Call the Midwife. In fact, if I was writing a little subtitle for Exodus 1, I would, I would title it Call the Midwife. Because here they play a really important role. And here's what happens. Pharaoh is concerned that the Israelites are multiplying. And so he has a plan. He has a plan for a vicious population control. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you act as midwives, that is, when you're doing the work that you're going to do to help deliver these Hebrew babies, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. Pharaoh seems to be concerned about the growth of the male population, primarily because they would, in Pharaoh's minds, they would provide uh, the troops for the army. They would provide the, the, the means of resistance against uh, Egypt's army in the event of war. So it's a vicious, vicious form of population control. Now, one, one, uh, before we move on to see what these two women uh, do, one point uh, to highlight is uh, whether or not Shifra and Puah are Hebrew. They're described as Hebrew midwives, but in Hebrew, that phrase can be read in one of two different ways. In Hebrew, that phrase can mean either Hebrews who serve as midwives, that is, they're Hebrews and their occupation is midwives, or it could mean that they are Egyptians or some other nationality who serve as midwives to the Hebrews. So the text is actually not completely clear on the nationality of these women. Both forms are possible. The names themselves appear to be Semitic, that is, they appear to be Hebrew sort of names. However, in the flow of the story, I don't think it makes sense that these are Hebrew women. In one, it, it, and that's in part because when, when Pharaoh makes, brings these midwives to them and says, you know, kind of join me in this plot in, in killing Hebrew babies, it seems implausible to me that he would ask Hebrew midwives to do that. If they were Egyptian midwives serving uh, in this capacity, it seems to me more likely that they would obey him. But it seems um, unsurprising that Hebrew midwives would not follow the command of, of Pharaoh. In either case, uh, it's ambiguous who these women are. If they are, in fact, Egyptian and not Hebrew, what happens next is all the more surprising. Verse 17 tells us, but the midwives feared God. Now remember, if they're Egyptian, what does this imply about God's control over the events in Egypt, right? It's quite profound. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. This is nothing short uh, of an act of civil disobedience. This is a revolt under Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's very eyes and very, very uh, command. Uh, what happens next, I don't have the text up here, but it's my favorite part of the story. So Pharaoh finds out what's happened, of course, and he goes and confronts the midwives, and he said, look, you know, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you carry out the command? And the women's response is this great um, uh, kind of worker or cover-up story. The midwives say to Pharaoh, well, look, it's because the Hebrew women are so vigorous. They're more vigorous than the Egyptian women, and when they, when they, give, they give birth before we're even needed. So the midwives say, well, we didn't let them live, but they, the kid was born, and we didn't have anything to do with it. So they try to do this cover-up to suggest that they really weren't complicit 
in resisting Pharaoh's plans. Whether Pharaoh bought that story or not, I don't know. Uh, but it's, it's a wonderful example of how shrewd these women were in trying to carry out this form of resistance. So what do we, um, what do we make of this story? Why include it here in the beginning of the book of Exodus? Well, perhaps this is simply a way, and this is very common in ancient storytelling, it's a way to kind of describe the perilous background of a hero's birth. Right, so Moses is about to be born, and so this kind of sets the stage for how dangerous of a time it would have been for Moses. It could have functioned that way. We find this in other ancient and even modern stories. This sort of thing happens. Another possibility, and to me it's more theologically rich, is that this is a story about a no-named pharaoh who is thwarted by two named nobodies. A no-named pharaoh thwarted by two named nobodies. I say nobody simply because if these are Hebrew midwives, they wouldn't exactly have been the people you expected to overthrow Pharaoh or, to re or successfully resist his command. And in fact, I think what stands out in this story is that the only two people named are these two midwives. Pharaoh continues without a name, and even as these two midwives are named. I think that theologically suggests that, the, that, that even these women are more prominent than Pharaoh. The third point of connection is a bit more speculative, but I wondered if in some ways this story anticipates Matthew's story about the Magi or the wise men. If you remember how that story goes in the early part of Matthew, um, Herod ha heard uh, that, that this savior, this king of the Jews was going to be born, and he sends the Magi to find out where the kid is going to be born. And, and do the Magi report back to Herod about what happens? No, because they know what Herod's going to do. Herod's plan is to kill that boy born in a major to Mary and Joseph. And so the, the Magi flee, and as a result, Herod um, actually has this, this plot to kill all of the boys in Israel under, or born in that vicinity under two, year old, uh, two years old. So Herod and Pharaoh have a lot in common in terms of their, their fear of who's going to be born, and they, they initiate these vicious plots of, of population control. And in both cases, unexpected people, foreigners, the Magi from the east, and these, uh, these midwives from Egypt foil the plot of the great commander for the purposes of Yahweh saving his people. So it's, there's a, I don't know that the, uh, I, 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 I want to say that the author of Matthew has this story in, in the back of his mind as he retells the story of the birth of Jesus. So any questions on this point? These are our first two uh, her heroines, Shifra and Pua. I just like saying that last name, Pua, Pua. Uh, reminds me of um, that Sen of, a, Sen of a Woman movie where, um, uh, what's his name? Um, not De Niro, but the, um, Pacino says, hua, hua, say pua. Anyway, sorry. That's, any questions on this? Completely editorial and unhelpful comment there. Um, all right, well, let's move to the next two women who we find in the very next chapter. Uh, here we find Moses' mother and Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, this is an unlikely pair, an Israelite and Egyptian. Both end up uh, playing a motherly role to Moses, but they both work in concert to deliver this baby boy from peril. Here's what happens. Um, seeing how his first plan does not work out, Pharaoh uh, orders all of his people, not just the midwives, Pharaoh orders all of his people to take any kid, uh, any baby boy, that is, and throw them into the Nile. So the same sort of thing, but now he can't trust the midwives. So he's trying to enlist everyone's help to eliminate the Israelites. Uh, and at that time, a woman from the house of Levi marries and gives birth to a son. 
and she hides him for three months. But at that point, she was no longer able to hide him, and fearing uh, that she cannot keep it a secret any longer, fearing for the safety of her child, she places this little baby boy, and we'll learn soon that that baby boy is named Moses. She places that little baby boy in a basket and sets him along the reeds in a river. All along, Moses' sister, who again remains unnamed, stands at a distance. This act of the mother of Moses is an act of desperation. She fears that all hope has been lost. It's the equivalent of of maybe a, a mother or parents abandoning a baby on a doorstep or in a firehouse, or something like that, where it seems like uh, a horrific thing to imagine. But the point of desperation, the point of hopelessness that leads to that moment that somehow abandoning this baby would be safer than continuing to keep him in her her own home. It's hard to underestimate what that would have been like. Uh, It might even recall for us a story that we considered a few weeks back, that story of Hagar, when Hagar, in a similar position of desperation, abandons Ishmael, under a bush, assuming that she and her son would both die. It's a very similar sort of, of theme. And it's, it's terribly dis- disturbing. Uh, it seems hopeless. But I would argue that the ancient reader, the reader who would have read this story in its Hebrew original, would have had reason for hope. Because in reading this story, certain words would have popped out to the ancient reader. And those words would have resonated with another story of deliverance found earlier in the book of Genesis. And in particular, they would have noticed these two words, basket and pitch. And the word basket in Hebrew, Sarah Smith knows this and Lydia knows this, uh, teva, appears only one other time in the Hebrew Bible. One other time this word translated basket here, teva, appears in the Hebrew Bible. And it appears in the flood story, that story in Genesis 6 through 9. Any guesses on how teva is translated there? And I'll give you a clue. It's not translated basket. Sarah, go ahead, show off. You remember? The ark. This word that gets translated here as basket is the same word for that thing that Noah builds in Genesis 6 through 9. In fact, also, I'll show you the parallel. Um, Here it is in uh, Genesis 6, 4. Make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark. Again, this is the same word here and here as here, just translated differently. And cover it inside and out with pitch plastered it with bitumen and pitch. I think when an ancient Hebrew reader reads this story in the original language, it jumps off the page to them that this isn't just a basket. This is an ark. And just as God had once saved Noah from a watery death through a tava, God once again is going to save another person, Moses, from a watery death with a tava. So I think there's, there's, uh, there's kind of programmed, into the, baked into the story, is this reason to hope. Well, in either case, as it happens, the ark floats down the Nile. And where does it end up? For those of you who might know the story, where does the ark, uh, who, who discovers the ark and where? Pharaoh's daughter discovers the ark while bathing in the Nile, presumably by the royal palace, although that point is not emphasized in the story itself. Um, but think of the drama here. Pharaoh orders all babies to be drowned in the Nile, and then Pharaoh's daughter finds a baby boy in a basket on a Nile. Literally, if you are Moses' mother, this is the worst case scenario, right? You thought it was bad putting your baby into the basket. Now that baby who you're trying to send off for safety ends up on the doorstep of the person 
who wants to kill all baby boys. And right on the bank of the Nile, it would have been easy to dispose of this baby, or at least I imagine this is, my, this is uh, what was likely going through Moses' mother's mind. But what happens next is shocking. When she, Pharaoh's daughter, opened it, that is the little ark, uh, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. So she recognizes that it's a Hebrew baby boy. She knows, for certain she knows, the command of her father to kill all baby boys in the Nile. But what does Pharaoh's daughter do? She takes pity. She takes pity. Now, when we often use the word pity, uh, I think we typically mean it as something like to, to have compassion or to feel sorrow for someone because of their suffering. And certainly that's at play in this story, too. It's the same sense of pity with the Hebrew word for pity. But I think there's something more here. The Hebrew word for pity typically refers to holding back, holding back from an action that for one reason or another might be expected. So what do we expect Pharaoh's daughter to do? Take the baby or maybe just overturn the basket, not to be too graphic, but we expect Pharaoh's daughter of all people to carry out the command. So when it says that Pharaoh's daughter has pity, what it means is that she did not do the very thing we expect her to do. This is part of the drama of the story. You can imagine uh, an Israelite reading the story, not, not knowing the details, and you get to this moment, and then the total opposite happens that you are expecting. It's an incredible act of pity. So here Pharaoh's daughter is this uh, surprise heroine in the story. She holds the life of Moses as a little baby in her hands and she and she instead decides to let him live. And I'll say more about Pharaoh's daughter in a moment, but for now there's another character that must be introduced. And that is Moses's sister. Now, Moses's sister apparently has been lurking in the background all along. When we hear that baby Moses was born and that the mother uh, puts him into a basket, we learn that Moses' sister was there watching. And then somehow when Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter gets that basket as she's out bathing, all of a sudden Moses' sister is there. How she, she must have followed the basket as it drifted down the river, how long that took, I do not know. How a Hebrew would have ended up at the royal court where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing seems implausible. I don't know if this was like kind of a mission impossible type of scenario, how she got into the foreign court. But either, either case, there she is. She's in the center of action, and she dares to speak to Pharaoh's daughter. This is a wonderful Chagall painting, by the way. We have, of course, a little baby. Uh, this is the, the maidservant uh, that we read about in the story. This, of course, is Pharaoh's daughter. Then off here in the distance is, now it could be Miriam, but remember she's not named as Miriam, but it's Moses' sister. And this is what happens. Then his sister, I'm going to put Miriam with a question mark, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? So the, so the sister knows that Pharaoh's daughter wouldn't be able to nurse this child. It wasn't hers by natural birth. So she now wants to go and get a nurse among the Hebrew women. Who does she go to get? The actual mother of the child. Now, the sister is shrewd not to reveal that. She's not going to say, well, I want to go get the actual mother of the baby because, hint, hint, I'm his sister. Uh, that would have put her at some, uh, some danger, I would presume. So she, she kind of does this, uh, uh, she speaks a little bit opaquely and says, well, let me go get you a woman who could fulfill this task. So that in either case, the girl goes and gets her mother. Uh, and we only can imagine um, the mother's shock 
when she learns what has happened. The Bible doesn't tell this part of the story, but can you imagine that scene when Miriam goes, let's call her Miriam, Miriam goes and says, Mom, guess what? I found Moses. It wasn't called Moses then, but I found your son, and you'll never guess where I found him. And you get to have the chance to come back and nurse him. And it's that moment. I, I wonder what to make of, that, of what the mother would have felt at that moment. To me, it seems like it would have been bittersweet. Because on one hand, the mother was going to be reunited with the son that she thought she would never see again in her life. And that she would actually get to nurse him and raise him as a child. That seems to be wonderful and sweet, but it seems bitter because she knows that she's only going to play mom for a few years. That this is not a permanent deal. That she's not getting back her son for good. She's getting back her son for a time. And ultimately, after that baby is weaned and she's no longer leaded, that son becomes the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And she, the mother, once again, has to fade into the scene. So it's a short reprieve in some ways. But I think it's tinged with, with it, uh, at least a certain dose of bitterness as, as the... Uh, Moses' mother uh, understands what's going to happen. In either case, uh, when the child did grow up, she, Moses' mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter took him as her son, right? So this is almost a, a form of adoption. And in fact, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter names the little baby. We don't know what the baby's name was up until this point. But at this point, after the baby was weaned, uh, Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The naming here of Moses is quite curious. Moses is a good Egyptian name. It's not a Hebrew name. It's a good Egyptian name. In fact, uh, the, the three consonants that make up the word Moses, M-S-S, in, e in Egyptian, in Middle Egyptian, means something like born of. And we know this, the, these consonants appear in other names. So Thutmosis means born of Thoth. Thoth is a, one of the gods in the Egyptian uh, pantheon. Ramses, that name that we talked about earlier, Ramses, see those, uh, those same letters again, M-S-S? Ramses means born of Ra, the sun god in ancient Egypt. So the Pharaoh's daughter, quite understandably, names Pharaoh, or it names the baby, with a good Egyptian name. The problem is, or what's confusing, is this later explanation. Because she said, I drew him out, of the water. Well, MSS in Egyptian does, has nothing to do with I, drawing someone out of water. There's no kind of etymological connection there. So what's happening? It seems that the author of the biblical tale is embarrassed that the savior of the Israelites, the very person who delivers Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he's embarrassed, the biblical author is, that he has an Egyptian name. So what does he do? Well, he creates, the biblical author does, um, kind of an alternative explanation for what this name means. And so he finds this root in Hebrew, masha, or masa, excuse me, that means I drew him out of the water. That's not what Moses means. That's not why Pharaoh's daughter named him that. But it's the way the biblical story tries to reappropriate this little uh, boy's Egyptian name into a good Israelite name. And so thus ends uh, the story then, uh, uh, which, where we see, in some ways, Miriam, or Moses' sister, Moses' mother, and the daughter of Pharaoh, all working together in concert to save this little baby boy. Uh, let me pause here if there's any questions. Uh, from there, we'll say a little bit more about Miriam, but let me pause at this juncture to see if there's any questions about the narrative or any details in the story. Josh. 
so I think they're, they're not embarrassed about Moses. They're embarrassed that he has the name that he has. Like, so the biblical author, right? So this story would have been written hundreds of years after this all would have taken place. So in terms of that historicity, you know, the document comes much later than the story itself. So I can imagine a biblical author, now this is long after the Israelites have been freed from Egypt, thinking, we've got this hero Moses, right? But he doesn't have the name of a good hero, right? I mean, to draw a, a, a more of a controversial contemporary connection, which I probably shouldn't, but remember when Barack Obama was first running for election? I mean, there were problems with his name. Uh, there were problems with what people thought. People confused Obama with Osama. You know, there, there, was these, like, there was these concerns about the name of the figure, right? And so I, it, it's a loose analogy, but I wonder if the, if the biblical author kind of said, look, for PR reasons, this guy needs, we can't rename him. People already know of him, Moses. But for PR reasons, we got to come, come up with an alternative explanation about what Moses means. Ah, let's make it sound like a Hebrew, Hebrew name. Let's give it a Hebrew meaning. And then people will think, oh, look at that. Pharaoh's daughter gave Moses, the deliverer of the Israelites, a good Israelite name. No way she does that. But that's how I think the biblical authors retell the story. Does that make sense? Okay. There's one other. <laughs> that's right, yeah. <laughs> I think another here, please. Ah, yeah, great, that's a great question, and it's a confusing point. Um, I put question mark after Miriam in that earlier slide because uh, I, I think this is, uh, or here, because we don't know for sure that Miriam is his sister, because in Exodus 2, his sister is never called Miriam, and in other parts of Exodus, Miriam is never called his sister. In other books of the Bible, like the book of Numbers, then we get the explanation that Miriam is Moses' sister. But at this point in the story, unless you already, already know in your head that Miriam is Moses' sister, you don't know that this is Miriam. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, the stuff in the bracket I inserted. I apologize. Yeah, I, I put that in there. That was in the RPV version of Scripture, which I encourage you not to read. Um, yeah, a question. Let me get two questions back. Katie and then, is that Bruce? Sorry, my... Yeah. I, that's beautifully said, and that's probably a better way of saying what I'm trying to say, is that, uh, that the biblical authors give it a second meaning, a meaning that would have theologically resonated with the Israelites because, you know, his name means, I drew him out of the water. That recalls how baby Moses was saved, right? But by putting those words in Pharaoh's daughter's mouth, the biblical author kind of makes Pharaoh's daughter this faithful representative of Yahweh. And that might well be the case. My only point is that, I think it, it seems inconceivable to me that Pharaoh's daughter would have given this baby a Hebrew name. Why? Because if, she's, if she draws this kid out, right, this is in direct opposition to her dad's wishes. I think she would want to do everything to cover up the fact that she is raising a Hebrew boy. Right? So she gives him a good Egyptian name. Now, I don't know what Pharaoh thought about, I don't know what Pharaoh, where, what, where he thought this kid came from. 
uh, or like what, where, how he was like filling in the blanks or something like that. Maybe he didn't care. But I think giving him an Egyptian name actually enables Pharaoh's daughter to keep him hidden better than like if you named him Joseph or something like that. That probably wouldn't, like, why, why'd you name him that? Like, is this a Hebrew boy? Well, it is. And that, and that doesn't go well. So that's how I see it. Again, I'm filling in a lot of gaps here. Uh, but the story leaves these gaps and I think invites the reader. Let me get one more question and then we're going to move on to a few points. Let me go in the back. Appreciate your hand up. And circumcised, which would have been a little bit of a giveaway. Ah. She recognized him as a Hebrew baby. You know, it's like the looks, the whatever. You know, it's like you've got a double whammy here that's going to make it tough. Yeah. So. No, that's a great point, Bruce. So she cert- how she knows this, we're not entirely uh, certain. I mean, um, but she knows from the very beginning that this is, where is it? Um, I don't think it's up on the screen. But when she opens the basket, she knows it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a Hebrew boy. Okay, so that's clear. The point about circumcision, I'm gonna, we're going to get to it because there's a weird story about that. And I'm pretty certain that Moses was not circumcised at this point, And it has to do with the story that we get later. Um, all right, I know there's other hands. I'm happy to receive some further questions, but I want to highlight a few other aspects of the story here. Um, I want to say a few words about Miriam. Now, this is finally the named Miriam. Maybe all that other stuff was about Miriam, too. We simply don't know. But Miriam isn't named for the first time until Exodus 15, verse 20. And here I love this. Sorry, I had to use this. I usually try to use very elegant pictures from Renaissance uh, artists and so forth, but I love this picture of Miriam from the kids' Bible heroes. It feels like it's a sort of like action figure my son would play with at three and a half. Um, but what do we know about Miriam? Surprisingly, not a lot. She looms large in the history of Old Testament theology in many ways, but she's only mentioned seven times in the Old Testament, and a number of those times are in Exodus 2 when we're really not certain that it's Miriam. Um, so beyond that, she's mentioned very little. But what we find out uh, in Exodus 15, 20 is that Miriam is Aaron's sister. She's called a prophetess. Now, what the, exactly that meant at that time, we're not certain. But she's called a prophetess. In Exodus 15, uh, she sings this famous duet with Moses, perhaps the famous, most famous Israelite duet of all time. In Exodus 15 is this celebration song after God had led the Israelites through uh, the waters of the Red Sea or the Reed Sea uh, into safety and freedom for the first time. And that after the description of that event, there is this wonderful victory song that Moses and or Miriam sing in celebration of it. So she has a prominent role there. Uh, in later prophetic tradition, Miriam is listed alongside of Moses and Aaron as the three leaders of the uh, Israelite community in the wilderness. And in those texts, interestingly enough, it doesn't say uh, that Miriam is Moses' sister, but it just names these three people, Miriam, Moses, Aaron. They are the kind of the triumvirate. They are the three leaders who lead the Israelites through the wilderness. Despite Miriam's very positive role, not all things go well between Miriam and Moses. And in fact, there's one point of controversy between the two of them that I, I want to very briefly highlight before turning then to the story of Moses' wife. Uh, in Numbers 12, we find that Miriam, along with Aaron, raise a complaint about Moses, and they bring it to God. And here's what they say. They say, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken also through us? So Miriam and Aaron have this sense that, look, we're leaders too. 
why is Moses getting all the press? Why is Moses the one chosen leader? And this is a funny little cartoon I found about it. It's always Moses and God. You can imagine siblings kind of making this complaint. Um, it's always Moses and God. God and Moses. What about us? Right? So they have this complaint, and then God responds immediately. And it's clear what side God takes. Here's the response in Numbers 12. Whether there are prophets among, or when there are prophets among you, I, the Lord, make, um, make myself known to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams, but not so with my servant Moses. So here God is saying, Moses is different. He's unique. He is entrusted with all of my house, not you. With him I speak face to face, not you, Miriam and Aaron. Clearly not in riddles. And he, not you, beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Now, if it's not clear about whose side God is on in this dispute, in the very next few verses, we find out that Miriam is struck with leprosy. Why Aaron isn't punished is not so clear to me, but Miriam is punished with leprosy. And it takes Moses interceding on behalf of God for her to be healed. So what's going on here? You know, it, we might understand this story as a little kind of like a mini revolt within the Israelite community. We might understand it as sibling squabbling. Why does mom and dad favor that sibling over us, right? That sort of thing that I know that would never happen in your households. But theoretically, in other households, less holy households, it would happen in. Um, but I want to ask, do Miriam and Aaron have a point? Do Miriam and Aaron have a point? Well, maybe, maybe not. Here's why I think they might. God does speak through Aaron. Remember when Moses is commissioned and Moses throws up all of these excuses about why he can't be the leader and eventually he just says, God, send someone else. And what does God do? God says, okay, I'll send your brother Aaron. I'll speak to you and he will speak on behalf of me to the people. So technically, God does speak through Aaron, not just Moses. Also, as we said earlier, Miriam is a prophet. That is, she's labeled as a prophet, meaning that God speaks through her as well. So it's not only through Moses. Um, and then there is this text in Exodus 19.6, when God says to the Israelite people, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. This is a text that the reformers many, many, many years later draw on and refer to as the priesthood of all believers. They talk about how this text justifies the fact that there isn't this Catholic hierarchy of leadership in the church. There might be certain people designated for certain tasks, but at its core, the, the community of God is an egalitarian community. It's a priesthood of all believers. So I wonder, I've wondered, do Miriam and Aaron have this sort of text, number Exodus 19.6, in the back of their mind? Are they not questioning Moses and saying, look, God said... We are all to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation without people specially set apart with a special relationship with God. I wonder if that was their logic. I wonder if that's what they were thinking. If so, I'm not sure about who's right in this matter, but I will at least highlight the fact that Miriam and Aaron have some scripture on their side in raising this question. Now, as the story goes on, we know that God sides with Moses. We know from tradition that Moses uh, is seen as the leader par excellence of the Israelite people. So we know kind of how it's settled, but I don't think their initial question is, is, is as, uh, as off-putting or as unsupported as many typically think. Now, we have just a few minutes left, so I want to say a word about this woman, Zipporah, 
who Moses marries. Um, We don't learn much about her, and I'm not going to say a whole lot about her, other than to point to the oddness of her story. Um, We, uh, ah, there we go. Moses meets very quickly about how they meet. Moses meets his his wife at a well before there were things like Tinder and Match.com and so on and so forth. You met your spouse at a well. And Moses goes there to a well. He's in the desert of Midian. He goes there. Uh, There are some shepherds who are disrupting these seven daughters of the Midianite priest who are trying to draw water out of the well. And Moses shoos away the shepherds and helps them draw water. And then the Midianite priest gets wind of this and says, well, the natural payment for this is to give you one of my daughters for marriage. Not how I would do it, but that's one one way to do it. So so Moses gets connected to this woman, the daughter of the Midianite priest, Zipporah. Interestingly enough, some scholars have speculated that it's through this Midianite priest and his daughter Zipporah that Moses first learns about Yahweh. Why do they say this? Well, in in many regards, uh, in many places in the Old Testament, Yahweh is associated with this region. The earliest texts of the Bible associate God with this southern kind of Egyptian region. And why the Bible doesn't explain it this way um, exactly or explicitly, it, it is thought that perhaps this is where an idea of Yahweh first comes in. That is, that the priest of Midian was actually a priest of Yahweh. And it was through his in-laws and his wife that Moses learns about Yahweh. We don't know, of course, about what uh, Moses believed about God prior to this point. What we do know is that the very next story after they meet is when Moses encounters God at the burning bush. Maybe one leads to the other. I'm not sure, but it's an intriguing possibility. Finally, the only other place, and I'll end on this, the only other time, I like to end on the most difficult text so then I have an excuse about why I did not fully explain them in an adequate fashion. I would have, but I ran out of time. Uh, There's this strange text in Exodus 4 with Zipporah, and Bruce, this will go back to an issue you raised earlier. On the way, so they're headed down from Mount Sinai, okay? Or sorry, not from Mount Sinai. They're headed back to Egypt after being in Midian. And on the way, at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. What in the world is going on? It's assumed that this him is Moses, although the text does not explicitly say that. Let's assume that it is Moses. Moses has been traveling with his wife Zipporah and his son. Why would God meet Moses along the way and try to kill him? It makes no sense. The previous verse doesn't describe something Moses has done wrong. It just, this just happens all of a sudden. Okay, It's odd. But then what happens next, I think, is even more strange. But Zipporah took a flint, uh, sorry, I think there should be the word knife in there, uh, took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin. She circumcises the son, okay? And she touches Moses' feet with it. This is weird. And said, truly, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. What, friends, is happening? I really have very little explanation of this. It is very, very odd why there was a circumcision at this point. Um, how did Zipporah know what to do? Why does circumcision have to do with God being mad at Moses? Why was God mad at Moses in the first place? We don't know. Text, the text does not explain this at all. The only thing that we do know is the final line. So he, the Lord, let him alone. Somehow what Zipporah does saves Moses' life. This is not the first time that a woman saves Moses' life. But it's another strange encounter. How have interpreters, and I'll, I'll get you out here on this, 
How have interpret, interpreters uh, tried to make sense of this? Well, they, like us, have struggled to know what to say about it. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is really concerned that Yahweh was supposed to kill Moses. That doesn't make any sense. So the Greek uh, translators, they rewrite the story and say, well, it wasn't Yahweh. It was an angel. An angel comes along and wants to kill Moses. So it kind of creates some critical distance between uh, the antagonist and, and Yahweh. In the, in the Jewish rabbinic tradition, um, there's an added explanation because they wonder, well, why was God mad at Moses in the first place? And the Jewish tradition says, well, Moses failed to cir circumcise his son on time. Or maybe that Moses, Bruce, this goes back to, to your earlier observation, maybe Moses was never circumcised himself. And God was mad that Moses was never circumcised himself. And this is a story about that anger and how Zipporah solves the problem. That is, she circumcises both of her, her son and uh, her husband. Modern scholars think of this as an etiology for infant circumcisions. Now, what's an etiology? An etiology uh, is a story about uh, the, the cause, it's a story about the kind of the origins or the cause of a given practice. Well, this happens because once upon a time, da 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 da, da and that's why to this day we do such and such. Now, etiology should not be confused with etymology. What is etymology? Story of the origin of words not events or practices, and none of these things should be confused with entomology, which is a study of bugs, insects. So biblical scholars do a lot of this, very little of this, in my experience. At least I'm not that sort of uh, student of scripture. In either case, maybe this is a story about the origins of infant circumcision. That is, circumcision used to happen at an older age, but here's the story about why the Israelites start... Uh, uh, circumcising their kids as infants. That, to me, is the best explanation, but I have to admit, it is not fully satisf uh, satisfactory in the sense that I still wonder, what is God up to and what is Zipporah up to in this text? I need to get you out of here. Uh, at least I make you late for the next service. Um, but I hope you found this uh, study insightful about the role of women in a book that's often thought to be mostly about men. Thank you for being here, and we hope to have you next week.